podcast. This is Addie Matt. And this is Daniel Silver. And today we're going to be discussing Harry Potter. And, you know, one of the questions that I get a lot about this is, isn't Harry Potter evil? There are witches and wizards in it. You know, we as Christians shouldn't be reading these things. I mean, they do have magic in it. Dun, dun, dun. But, you know, the, the real question is, is like, is the magic that's used in the series the same um, as magic that, you know, that's forbidden in the Bible. Right. And so I I think that there's a really strong argument to be made and not everybody has to take this tack and not everybody has to believe this, but my question is what is the difference between the magic here and the superpowers in Marvel or the powers that aliens such as Superman has? What really is like the magic there? It's honestly like, at least in the world that rolling spells out, it seems to just be genetic abilities to manipulate time and be able to use a time turner. Sorry, manipulate nature and <laughs> be able to use a time turner and you know notice things like Hogwarts sitting in the middle of like the Scottish Moor or something like that. Yeah, and you know when we're talking about bad wizards in Harry Potter, you know we often get onto you know the dark arts, and even in the dark arts, I would argue they're not necessarily doing what is wrong with magic in the real world. They're not, um, you know, talking to spirits. They're not getting their power from the devil. The thing that's wrong with the dark arts is that magic is being used for bad things. And I would argue specifically violence against the image of Christ in all of us. So, you know, there are spells that take away a person's free will and agency. There are spells, you know, spells that kill are forbidden things like that. And if we look at Voldemort, kind of the ultimate example of that, you know, he's splitting apart his own soul um, to create the Horcruxes in, at, at the center of the story. Right, and, and part of that splitting apart his soul includes killing other people. I mean, you know, what you're doing here is bad things with, you know, tools which can be used for good. And we see this too when. You know, somebody almost kills McGonagall with Stupefy, which is, you know, not exactly a harmless hex, but it's also seen to be used by people using it to protect other people elsewhere in the story. It's not, you know, an unforgivable curse or anything, but it does almost kill McGonagall. So really, I think a lot of the, you know, good and evil in... Harry Potter comes from, you know, what do you use this this magic for? And I think that's present in a lot of superhero stories, you know, with great power comes great responsibility. And so it's all about how you use those powers. On the other hand, though, you do have a lot of Christians, um, instead of seeing Harry Potter as evil for having magic, taking parts of the story, particularly Harry's sacrifice at the end and Harry's mother's sacrifice at the beginning of giving their lives willingly, to save people that they love, sort of as a Christ-like image or a sort of Christian ideal. Yeah, and actually, I, I really identify a lot with that view, um, especially as it relates to kind of the the Orthodox view of Christ's sacrifice. Because, um, you know, we talk a lot about, like, the, the scouring of Hades and when Christ went down um, after the death on the cross. And there, there's a Paschal hymn that I really like by St. John Chrysostom. And he talks about it, Christ ascended to Hades. And, he, and they say, It took a body and met God face to face. It took earth and encountered heaven. It took that which was seen and fell upon the unseen. And what that's really speaking to is speaking to, you know, Hades took this, Christ, this, this human body that Christ was in. And instead of just finding the human body, it found 
Christ, you know, God in it as well. And so, and so it was destroyed by that, which to me is kind of similar to Voldemort in the final book, you know, destroying Harry, who was the last Horcrux, and, and his downfall coming because of that. Yeah, no, and I, I can definitely see how people see sort of Christ in that. Though, given that it's different than sort of Aslan, right? Or different than some of these other Christ figures in these other Christian books. And what I actually really like about Rowling is that Harry almost is too flawed to be a pure Christ figure. And I mean, if you think I'm wrong, like... <laughs> Yeah, I'm totally willing to debate that, Daniel, but... Well, I think there can be multiple levels. Like, I think I think Harry can be an example of this kind of hell being embittered um, example. But I, I also tend to agree with you that, yeah, he is a little too flawed to be. Right, I mean, but in that, I, I kind of like that even more. And I think this is also, especially in the last book and a half of the series, Rowling kind of putting her Anglican cards down on the table, right, with all of the Christian images imagery and even bible verses on lily and james tombs but i kind of like that sort of in that anglican catholic path like the western patrimony sort of a, a good modern version of a story showing not necessarily who christ is but how to be a christian and i think that that's good for a modern story to sort of reintroduce to modern readers and modern kids. And I think that's I think that's a good example. And you know, one of the things that really stands out for me with Harry's Christian living is his willingness to sacrifice, you know, not just for his own personal gain or for his family, but and not even just his friends, but for everyone. Like everyone at Hogwarts, everyone in the world, you know, he has this kind of view of of the sacrifice he's making. Right. He's willing to even die for Zachariah Smith. Uh, <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, that that really gets me to thinking to kind of comparing and contrasting the, the different characters' views of, like, family and love. And so one of the things that's always stood out to me in the last book is the, the Malfoys, the Malfoys kind of redemption in that last book. Um, right. And how you see a real love for... And for those who need a brief refresher, at the very end, Harry comes back to life. Spoiler alert. It's been, what, ten years now. So, sorry, but... Also, I think the spoiler alert sort of referendum has run its course on that. Malfoy's, Draco Malfoy's mother, Narcissa, allows Harry to sneak back into the castle by noticing that he's alive, but also knowing that the only way to save her son is to let Harry back into the castle. So she sort of betrays this evil dark lord that her family's been working with for 20-some-odd years for the sake of her son. And the rest of the Malfoys have had sort of similar elements where they're willing to not go full in on the evil for the sake of their mom or their dad or people that they care about. And, you know, and that really gets into something for me, which is kind of the sorting into the different houses. And, you know, and there's this kind of opinion that like Slytherin is always evil and they're always out to do the most evil and they don't they don't love anyone but you know there's there's a site that 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 Ed and I really like it's it's called um Sorting Hat Chats. Sorting Hat. Uh, it's a Tumblr. And if you haven't read that and we'll put a link to this in the description. 
but it goes through sort of the different primary traits of all of the houses and because it's unfair to say Slytherin's primary trait is that they're evil I mean golly like if you had you know a test where you could say oh yeah and that's an evil person from the age where they're you know 10 or 11 that would be one really useful but also really horrifying for society but sort of like Slytherin's defining trait is that they care a lot for their families and the people that are close to them and I mean, you can see this with the Malfoys. I mean, even Draco sort of betrays the fact that he respects Dumbledore by his being unable slash unwilling to kill him in the sixth book. And it goes through the rest of the houses, too. Sort of everybody knows Gryffindors are brave, but what are the actual defining traits of Hufflepuff and of Ravenclaw and what does that actually mean? And something important, that I think, when we're talking about Harry Potter being an example of Christian living, you know, Slytherins loving their their family and those close to them is, is a natural thing. You know, you, you love thing. and you love those who who you know. But the but the whole point of the Christian life is to then take that love, that example of that love, and go out and love everyone. Right. And that's what Harry Potter really exemplifies. Well, and, and that's something you know, even Mother Teresa and somebody asked her famously once. You know, how do you end poverty? How do you save the world? And she says, go home and love your family. Like, this is where Christian life starts, but it should grow from there. And I think if you take the epilogue, sort of the peace between Harry and Draco to mean that there actually is some amount of peace between them, that they're on civil terms now, that at least for the Malfoys, there's a nascent blooming of that sort of peace that comes from the Battle of Hogwarts. And I think that that contrasts pretty harshly with another Slytherin who, for some reason, is held up as this great example of redemption and of a good guy who's just been misunderstood. And that man, who I think sort of should get all of the, I hate it's too strong of a word, but criticism that we can, you know, rightly put upon him is Mr. Severus. <laughs> and I think the, you know, the thing with him is that he should be a really unsympathetic character. We, we, should, we should be giving him pity, but we shouldn't be giving him sympathy. We, we... He tortured poor Neville for seven years. Come on. And, you know, I, I, was, I was telling Eddie before I was saying that Snape never really apologizes for his actions as a member of the Death Eaters, like he—he's never truly sorry for those things. He, his actions are all about this infatuation that he had with Lily years ago, that that was really misplaced. Infatuation, mind you. Yeah, and you know, and and it's like, you know, Snape went off and he joined the wizard Nazis and out of high school. And then you know he he comes back after he's done terrible things after Lily has died. And he says, that, and he says to Dumbledore that he's willing to do anything to avenge her death, essentially. But even for a Slytherin, he he doesn't love like the people he wants to be his family or the people that are perceived to be closest to him. He he just has this this hate. Right. He has this hate for Harry, who's the only biological relative he knows, at least, uh, because he doesn't know the Dursleys. I'm sure he would get along well with the Dursleys, but. You know, one of the only biological relatives of this woman who he loved for his entire life completely hates his guts and refuses to be nice to him at all. He tortures poor Neville, he tortures Hermione, he tortures basically everybody 
who's not a Slytherin, and even then it's not clear really if he has any true feelings or affection for anybody, maybe except for Draco. And even then, it's really just about respect and power and really just avenging this woman who he had a creepy crush on for all of his adolescence and never got over. And, yeah, and, and, and I think that we need to remember that. And, and you know, that there's this idea that, you know, oh, he's doing it for love or, or he, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's been redeemed. You know, he sacrificed himself for Harry. And I just don't see that Is in the book. Is he ever sorry? He never, except for maybe at the very end. But, I mean, and sure, deathbed conversions are good. But it's kind of unclear whether or not that was an actual convert or like what was going on here and before that point he never really showed any remorse i mean one of the things that harry focuses on at the end um for the sake of saving voldemort was this idea of remorse and repentance for things that you've done wrong as a way of sort of repairing that brokenness of the soul and it's not clear we ever see snape going through that at all yeah and so and so i thought it was really interesting just to see that kind of the spectrum of Kind of redemption with you know Snape having no redemption, the Malfoys having some you know based in that love for family, and then Snape and then Harry having that true redemption, you know that that love for everyone that comes from his love for his family and his friends and goes out to the rest of the world. And and I think that love for everyone includes Voldemort. I mean, he really does try, I think, to get Voldemort to repent for the good of himself because it's the only way to avoid killing him but i mean he does try to get voldemort to do what's good for voldemort you know even given that this man has killed however many thousands of witches and wizards and muggles he does try to redeem him and and i think that's the beauty of redemption is that it it branches out from the person themselves. Like, that love goes forth. So yeah, like, that whole spectrum of redemption is very, very obvious in at least the last book or so of Harry Potter. I would agree with that. So the last thing I want to discuss today deals with discernment um, and just how we as Christians should use these materials that we're reading. You know, the, the thing that I see most common in the secular reading of Harry Potter these days is as a political allegory and, you know, the, the idea that everyone I like is Harry Potter and everyone I don't like is Voldemort, which I, I realize I called Snape a wizard Nazi, but he was, just to be fair, but... Yeah. but. Well, but, uh, yeah, and it, it's across this political spectrum. I mean, you see, last year I saw Harry Potter-related signs at both the Women's March and the March for Life, for instance. You know, it sort of in all sorts of political spheres, especially, you know, for us millennials and younger. It's part of, I mean, and this is part of its success in sort of being such a pervasive cultural iconoclast, but also part of that is playing into some of the things Harry Potter criticizes itself in sort of this sorting people into purely good, purely bad, purely Death Eater, purely, you know, Dumbledore's army resistance, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I think I think the Dumbledore's army I think is the most common trope these days, you know, with the obvious resistance things. And and I think I think if we're actually reading Harry Potter, I think we should take away what you said. We we should take away a more complex reading of our current political situation and not be trying to sort everyone into into different houses. I mean, we you know we well, have we're we, we, going to sort people into houses. Do it via the sorting hat chats method again. 
go check that tumbler out. <laughs> yes, but disclaimer, it is not a magical hat. It is just a tumbler. So as good as it is, it will not be able to actually magically sort you into whatever house you want. It'll give you a lot more confusion probably about the house system. But anyway, back to sort of the point of politics and partisanship and sort of how we engage in society as Christians. I I think one of the actual lessons of Harry Potter is that not all Slytherins are evil. There are Slughorns out there that, you know, not all people who are not Slytherins are great. I mean, we see, you know, Wormtails and Zachariah Smith, while not evil, is just a plain jerk. But that people are more complex and it's not just good and bad and that good people can do bad things. I mean, Ron Weasley, for instance, and Ron gets way too maligned for way too many things, but, you know, I think he can legitimately be criticized for abandoning his friends and flaking out, you know, it was from a place of fear, but still about in dire straits, but he comes back, you know, or Dumbledore and will probably have a full episode on Dumbledore at some point, but his, you know, he's built up for the first half of the series as this sort of paragon of goodness, but if you look at his actions, I mean, some of them are pretty downright creepy, and his methods, and, you know, he might have good means, but honestly, some of the actions he takes are evil. Yeah, I think that, I think that what we have to do is we have to avoid a simplistic reading of Harry Potter one way or the other. We, we should avoid the reading, oh, it's evil because it has wizards, and we should avoid it in the sense that, oh, it's good because there's good versus evil, and, and you know, it's, it's so black and white. And, and in fact, the series is, I think one of its strengths is its moral complexity, and like, like you've been saying. Yeah. So, I think we will leave Harry Potter there for the day, come back to it later. We, there's definitely a lot more to talk about, and we could probably talk about Harry Potter for hours. But for right now, I think we're good. We're good, and we're going to leave you with a little bit of a treat today, actually. Our, uh, our subdeacon, uh, Nick Jones, of St. Mary's and Falls Church, has composed a Byzantine chant version of the Harry Potter theme song that we'll be playing right now. So thank you for joining us today. I'm Daniel Silver. Addy Meta. Oh, okay, 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 okay,